Hello and welcome to The Stushy, the Scottish politics podcast from DC Thompson that helps you be better briefed. I'm Andy Phillip and on this episode I'll be joined by Adele Merson, Derek Healy and Justin Bowie to have a look at the big stories of the week and the pick of the crop from across our titles. I can safely say we are in multiple stushy mode this week. There's a real sense that the Scottish Government and Nicola Sturgeon are really tangled up in the gender reform row, which shows no sign of untangling. We saw more doom-laden claims of national penury as the Scottish budget passed its first hurdle, and we marked the third anniversary of formally leaving the European Union with a big old dose of stock-taking and ideological scrapping. We also looked at the continued problems with the health services, starved of cash in all corners of the country. Between us, we'll get around all the horrors and attempt to find something positive too. But it's with Brexit that we start. It's perhaps an odd anniversary to look at, three years since the formal cutting of ties to the EU. The vote, of course, was in 2016. But it wasn't until 2020 that the UK government decided to make the final push. Even then, there was a lull before it all got real. So what's happened since then? According to the coordinates set by our former captain, Boris Johnson, we should be bathed in cash, enjoying the world's best health service, not worrying about pesky foreigners turning up on our door. Um, The fishing industry should be floating on a wave of optimism, um, newly British fish presumably chucking themselves into the nets and um, maybe even frying themselves. Is that the case? How's it been for you, Derek? Are you feeling that independent glow of sovereignty? (laughs) Am I feeling that Brexit optimism? Yeah. Um, that bulldog spirit, yeah. not so much. <laughs> oh no, I oh know, after all that. Um, yeah, well, you know, so obviously, I mean, looking across kind of Tayside and Fife and, and how it's impacted um, on businesses and, and people's lives, I mean, I think it's really, it's, it's impacted on every aspect of people's lives. You see it um, from the kind of cost of living crisis, it's sort of baked into some of that kind of stuff. But you also see it in different kind of industries like you see it in farming, which is obviously very important in areas like Angus, for example, and tourism. Um, you see it in all of those aspects. And then, you know, we're going to talk about this a lot bit more later on, but, you know, kind of council budgets are being considered at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that happened to the EU is that a lot of money came to quite kind of disadvantaged or uh, areas with lots of poverty. Um, the, the UK government told the Scottish government, told councils that they're going to replace some of this money. You're going to have all these sorts of schemes like the levelling up fund, for example, where we've just seen allocations being put out. But you've got areas missing out on that that are, are desperately seeking some money. So, yeah, I think three years on, um, you know, big promises were made about how wonderful everything's going to be. And I'm not sure whether that's really been delivered Aye. at this stage. You know, maybe one day it will be, but not yet. Yeah. Well, more of that later, because um, well, you're obviously talking about Tayside Fife there with your career politics chief hat on. And further up the coast, um, in P&J land, there's, the fishing industry um, was a major part of the Brexit coverage at the time. And to mark the anniversary proper, our political reporter colleague Rachel Amory caught up with, with um, one of the poster boys of Brexit. And that was how they described themselves anyway. That's, that's, that's the way Mike Park in Fraserburgh termed his seafaring colleagues. He told us in plain terms that the promises have turned to dust. Uh, nothing great's happened and that he can see and basically they feel like they've been sold down the river. So just hold that thought in your mind for a minute and we'll take a listen to what Prime Minister Rishi Sunak had to say 
about Brexit three years on when he was questioned by SNP Westminster leader Stephen Flynn in the Commons on Wednesday. Mr Speaker, we've just marked the three-year anniversary of Brexit and we've learned... They'll, they'll, not, they'll not be cheering in a moment, Mr. Speaker, because we have learned, we have learned three, we have learned three things. The UK's trade deficit has grown. Yep. The economy is being hit to the tune of hundred billion pounds each year, and of course, and of course, we know that the UK's economy is expected to be the worst performing of all advanced nations. Does the Prime Minister still believe that the UK can afford not to be in the European Union? Prime Minister. Well, uh, Mr Speaker, if you actually look at it, since uh, since, since Brexit, the UK has grown exactly the same as Germany has, uh, Mr Speaker. But uh, not only that, we are taking advantage of Brexit to deliver for the people across the UK, whether it's the fishing and farming communities of Scotland, whether it's through the two new free ports that we've just announced. But, Mr Speaker, the difference between his party and ours is that we respect referendums. Mr Speaker, let's let's be clear. Taken together, 2022 and 2023 are expected to be the worst years for living standards since the 1930s. Well, there we go. Cut off his prime there. Press Journal political editor Adele Merson's here to dig into this a little bit more. Uh, What exactly has Rishi Sunak been smoking? (laughs) Yeah, you alluded there to the the interview that Rachel did. I mean, you you heard there he just specifically referenced the the farming and fishing communities which is two big industries up in the the northeast and we heard from Mr Park that they effectively feel that nothing has been achieved for in their case you know several of them actually spoke out in favor of you know Scotland not seen as a very brexity place or certainly wasn't around the time of the referendum and uh it was the fishermen that were the ones kind of, I guess, putting their heads above the parapet and speaking up for it. And they now feel totally betrayed. I mean, one of the big problems is fishing quotas. So they're saying that before Brexit, the EU would set out how much of each species of fish each member country could take from the water in a year. Mm-hmm. And if one country fell short, the deficit could be transferred to another country. So UK fishermen are actually really struggling to get more quotas. And he's kind of also flagged up the amount of red tape that there is now and that it's costing them more and taking a lot longer to get fish to the continent. So certainly it seems strange that he is referencing fishermen there because they do not share his optimism that things are better for them. In fact, they seem to think that they're a lot worse. I thought it was kind of ironic as well that when you read through the story, which of course you can do on the P&J politics pages anytime you want, um, he's talking about how there's a lot of red tape since Brexit and you know, high cost of doing business. And that was, you, know, you couldn't you couldn't move for a Conservative minister saying that leaving the European Union would lead to no more red tape. But in, in many industries, you find that the exact opposite is now the case. So no wonder folk are feeling a bit disillusioned. I mean, there will be people listening to this who, let's be fair, who did vote for leave and stand by that decision. Fair play. You know, there was a million... Scots that backed Brexit in 2016 and I'm guessing among those people some will be like Mike Park who voted for what they thought were were good intentions only to see the government mangle it Um, are we being churlish to expect the moon on a stick three years on while there's war in Ukraine pandemic fallout economic crisis is there any light at the end of the tunnel Justin can you find anything cheery 
to say about this? I mean, that's a that's a tough question given the state of the UK economy at the moment, isn't it? I mean, there have been benefits touted by the UK government at times. I, I suppose one case you could think of a couple of years ago that was seen as maybe a kind of example of the UK being able to act on its own came to vaccine procurement. The EU was seen as a bit sluggish in that regard. I remember at the time, the UK's vaccine rollout was, was relatively quick and was seen as one of the better handled aspects of the pandemic. But there will be people who argue that that was not something that we couldn't have done if we were still in the EU. Yeah. And it feels like a lot of the benefits of Brexit that were touted by those who supported it just haven't necessarily worked out. You think, for example, um, bringing down immigration was seen as one of the kind of key tenets of Brexit, so freedom of movement would end and the UK would have control of its borders. But when the immigration figures came out a while back, it's still really high levels of immigration because a lot of sectors are depending on people to fill these jobs. So you're potentially losing out on workers in some sectors where people can't necessarily come in from the EU. But the actual immigration numbers aren't really down. Now, obviously, some people will see that as a good thing. They want more immigration. They're happy with the current levels. But it just feels like in so many sectors, you think the economy, it was meant to improve the economy, but we saw how the policies of Liz Trust kind of worked out in the end. She was supported by some of the kind of Brexit wings of the party. It, it just feels like all these benefits have kind of not transpired as the proponents hoped they would. Well, Justin, that was your silver lining, was it? <laughs> Started out um, mildly <laughs> positive, but yeah, it's. Uh, I just I think given the current state of the UK, it seems difficult to, to see where the benefits have been. Yeah, well, you know, the economy, of course, is in trouble all, all around, um, and that was brought to focus on Thursday in the Scottish Parliament, where Finance Secretary John Swinney was pushing his spending plans through at their first of three stages. There'll be plenty more debate about the where the pounds and pennies are allocated. This is the general principles of the budget, which of course has to be passed every year. Before that got underway in Holyrood, Scottish Labour leader Anas Sarwar raised the impact on council services and jobs with First Minister Nicola Sturgeon. So let's have a quick catch up with a clip from that encounter. After 15 years of command and control, things have gone so bad that many of Nicola Sturgeon's own colleagues are no longer willing to blindly follow the orders. Her MPs have lost faith in the strategy. Her councillors have lost faith in her decisions and now her MSPs face a choice. Will they vote through these cuts or will they finally, finally stand up for their local communities? Well, so he's not very happy and he was talking about uh, the COSLA, which is a group that represents um, councils across Scotland and, and how the budgets are going to hit them. Um, and he was putting a figure on job losses and things like that. So how does it all translate to real communities? Averages and spookily round numbers never really tell the whole story in where, where you live. Derek, you were listening to the, the, the wider debate and the budget um, chat after. So what, what is the outlook Okay, so just maybe to clarify on the numbers being kind of mentioned, first of all. So um, in this cause release, what they did was they spoke to around two-thirds of councils and they spoke to them about what kind of um, budget shortfalls are looking at over the next two to three years. And um, they then used that two-thirds of councils to extrapolate that out and say, okay, this is what it's going to look like over Scotland. So already you're looking at a picture that might not be completely accurate, um, but they're doing their best with what the information they have in front of them. Um, what they've done is, so they have taken the budget shortfalls and asked the councils involved, okay, 
how does if we take that budget shortfall, how does that relate to like a full time equivalent staff? Like how many how many staff members does that equate to this budget shortfall? And what they've worked out is that across Scotland, that's around seven thousand one hundred staff members, and that's where that figure is coming from. The reality is that three years from now, I'll give you the example of Fife. So Fife, they're going to lose, according to this, it's um, equivalent of 750 staff members. That's that's a cost around 750 staff members. There will not be 750 jobs going in Fife. What there will probably have to be is either an increase in the amount of money they're getting or a rise in council tax or um, cuts to council services. And yes, there may also be job losses involved in there as well. So it's not strictly... 750 jobs, 7,100 jobs, it's a bit less than that. But at the same time, um, what we've seen from speaking to some of our local council leaders is that there is real, real panic and desperation about how to balance the books here. Um, Really, really difficult decisions are going to have to be made and um, cuts are being passed on to local authorities. We saw, again, looking at Fife, um, the Fife um, council leader, David Ross, he, just before the budget, wrote to um, MSPs covering his area, um, really setting out in quite stark terms how difficult this position is and explaining that there isn't enough money to keep things running at current levels um, and there is going to be really, really difficult decisions to make. The same is true in Dundee. Uh, I'm sure it's true across every area that we cover, basically. Yeah. You know, really, really difficult decisions are going to have to be made. And that's a reality of this budget. Yeah. It's going to be incredibly tough. Yeah, and it's going to go through the the, the committee stages now at Holyrood. So there'll be mm-hmm. an opportunity for, for every council to make their, make their piece known. But the strain on finances is felt pretty keenly, not just in councils, but health boards, as we have reported and as others have constantly you you've been looking specifically a lot recently at um, nhs tayside as an example um and you've led the way again with some reporting on this in recent days so bring us up to to speed a little bit here about what one health board in isolation which is struggling for cash taking some what looks like fairly desperate measures yeah, so um, last week we talked about, I did an interview with, with uh, North East MSP Michael Mara, which was based on a story on NHS Tayside scaling back surgery work. So they could sort of mask the full extent of the financial difficulties that they're in. Mm-hmm. The idea was, let's scale back for 10 weeks, and then it will look not quite so bad when the end of the financial year comes up and we have to present these figures. And they were trying to avoid going into special measures. That was a plan. So we have to just describe special measures a little bit there, I think. What, what does that mean in practical terms for the health board? Yeah, so what that basically means is that um, an external team would be brought in to help run services. Um, so it happens in kind of fairly extreme circumstances where uh, a health board or another of public body is effectively failing to run services properly or you know there's maybe really bad financial problems or um, a service is sort of really not functioning properly for whatever reason and it will then get put into what's called special measures by the government and then this external team will come in and basically oversee things so it happened in NHS Tayside previously and people might be aware there was kind of financial scandals and general difficulties in terms of finances uh, problems with mental health, so um, a team came in, they were appointed, came in, ran it for, I think it was about two years, 
um, before it was then de-escalated away from that. Yeah. So the, the kind of latest update on this is that the Chief Operating Officer of NHS Scotland has got involved, has effectively blocked this move from going ahead and, and tried to seek assurances from the Chief Executive of NHS Tayside that this won't be happening. Mm-hmm. Um, we have seen, I mean, right, right the way through here, NHS Tayside and our communications team have tried to put forward a position basically that this stuff wasn't happening. We know that it was happening because we saw an email from the Associate Medical Director of in, in the surgery department um, or covering surgery, setting out how this was happening and how it was happening from the Monday before. So it wasn't yeah. a case of this is a thing we're thinking about doing, this is a plan. It's what they did. They put this stuff in place and then tried almost, I mean, almost tried to pretend it didn't happen. It never happened. You know, um, it's, an, it's an entirely bizarre situation. And um, they've been accused by, again, Michael Mara of not being transparent with the public and how they've managed us. You alluded to it there. You've caught a wee glimpse of something that the, the chief at Tayside's telling staff privately. Yeah, so what happened was um, it was agreed on this in this conversation between the chief operating officer of NHS Scotland and uh, Grant Archibald, NHS Tayside chief executive, that Mr Archibald would write to staff and set out the position very clearly so they knew that these... Um, reductions in surgery work would not be going ahead. <laughs> so we actually ended up getting forwarded on this email that was sent. And again, there was, a, there was a kind of, the way it was worded was to suggest that this was never the plan, that this was never going to happen. Um, you know, that almost a kind of, we're going to set the record straight from, from local media reports. <laughs> There's no need to set the record straight. I mean, what was there was factual and what was happening. Um, I mean, very, very carefully worded so that they're not saying we're going to do a U-turn here and we're, we're going to reverse uh, our plans and do something different from what's happening. And, you know, when, when, we, when we wrote the story, so I wrote the story on Tuesday evening, um, going out for Wednesday morning, and at that stage, surgery staff were reporting that they had no idea there had been a U-turn. So, you know, they're, they're concerned about how long it's going to take for surgeries to get set back up again because of course what happens is here you know if you if you write to people and say you know your surgery's not happening or it's going to be this day it takes time to fill the diary back up you know if you scale it back it doesn't it's not just overnight you can't just open up the theaters and then go okay we're going back to normal levels it takes time to arrange it to schedule it and to get the work going again and by the truth you know the night we're writing the story they didn't even know so to pretend that Oh, things things are just always as they were, and there's never been any problem here. It's just a nonsense, yeah. um, and that is exactly what that email was—an absolute nonsense. Oh, we would have got away with it if it wasn't for those pesky kids, <laughs> those pesky courier reporters. Uh, um, Adele, you've been covering another health board's woes with finances, um, to some respects. Well, the NHS Grampian, to be precise, which covers Murray. You could explain this yourself, but I mean, maternity services obviously in Elgin bit of a history there they've been downgraded and there's huge controversy about this, the provision of services there we've devoted a, an entire episode to the the real life kind of trauma that this is causing which i'd encourage listeners to to seek out um from previous episodes but what's the latest there in in murray with nhs grampian 
Yeah, so in essence, the maternity unit at Dr. Gray's in Elgin was temporarily downgraded from consultant-led to midwife-led four and a half years ago uh, as a result of a lack of staff. And since then, that means that only the most straightforward births can happen at Dr. Gray's. And actually, the majority of births either happen in Aberdeen, which is a 90-minute drive, or Inverness, which has its own stresses and strains uh, in terms of capacity, which is about a 60-minute drive. So we heard of another account from a mum in Murray who highlighted the really tough decisions that are facing some pregnant women there. So in her story, she began to go into labour and she had some bleeding. So she went to Dr. Gray's for a checkup and she was told that the medical advice at that time would be to go in an ambulance, a blue light ambulance to Aberdeen maternity hospital for treatment there to give birth there and on that day I think it was around two or three weeks ago there was some really bad snow particularly up in that area and it was she says the white the roads were white heavy snow she was told her husband would have to follow in the ambulance in his car so as you can imagine a woman in labor is in a a degree of stress anyway and she's being told that you might have to Uh, you probably will have to drive to Aberdeen in this ambulance and she's worrying about her husband, she's worrying about potentially giving birth en route and so they made the decision, she says her and her partner, to stay in Dr Gray's and there was a happy ending, she had a baby boy and it all worked out absolutely fine but she just wanted to share her story because I guess she's giving the sort of real life decisions that some women are having to make is it that you potentially go against the initial medical advice that you get which is no you know that's a big thing for anyone to do but at the same time it's also a big thing for anyone to contemplate going in an ambulance for an hour and a half in incredibly heavy snow and worrying about what might happen if you take that route so I think it really it just sums up the situation there and the fact that these stories are happening more and more I've actually had more women get in touch with me over the last few days about their experiences, which we will be covering hopefully next week in some more detail. Um, but I think it's it's a really big problem there. And the there are plans in place to reinstate the consultant-led unit, but in terms of the timelines currently, that's looking like late 2026, early 2027, which is still some time away. And that's, that's yeah. if it doesn't slip further, as we know from various projects whether it comes to from transport to health these things can get delayed and it all depends on being able to find the staff and it all depends on being able to get millions of extra money from the scottish government so yeah it's a really tricky issue yeah and you can't just magic up new trained staff with lots of experience in high levels they've got to come from somewhere too I mean, there's been lots of chat about you know can we spread the load around with aberdeen and Inverness? but like you pointed out they're you know they reach capacity there too so there's still um a lot of babies to be born in the years that are uh, that are waiting for dr grace to get fully upgraded again uh, and of course you can read all of that on the PJ pages online and in, in print as well with much more to come okay well that i think wraps it up for this week thank you to derek healy justin bowie adele merson producer morvid mcintyre and of course to you for listening We'll be back next week with more, but until then, pick up a paper or log on to The Courier, The Press and Journal and all of our news brands so that you can be better briefed. 
The Stushi is the politics podcast from DC Thompson, designed to help you understand the implications of what happens in Holyrood, Westminster and our communities so that you can be better briefed. Don't miss an episode by following The Stushi today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. And if you know folks like you who want to understand politics in Scotland a little better, suggest they tune in or follow Stushy Scott on Twitter and Facebook. And stay even more up to date on local and Scottish news by subscribing to The Courier or Press and Journal, where you can get one month of unlimited access for just £1. Check the episode notes for details and terms.